Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by David Courtier Dutton. David is the CEO and founder of SoundOut, an automated crowdsourced prediction and validation platform capable of testing the resonance of any media with any target demographic in over 80 countries. David, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. It's a real pleasure having you, David. Now, the purpose of this discussion is to establish your take on leadership first and foremost. So if we just look at that word leader aside for a moment, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates on the whole. Well, there are many different types uh, of leadership style, obviously, and they work better in some organizations than others. It all depends on the size of the organization, the, the vertical you're operating in, and what you're trying to achieve. But from a personal perspective, um, leadership to me, and we have a relatively small team, under 15 people, um, it's about creating a uh, team of people who are all pulling in the same direction. Um, it's all about teamwork, but at the same time, it's about fostering them as individuals. So that's giving them responsibility, uh, and with responsibility comes, of course, accountability. So uh, it's about pushing people hard enough uh, so they gain confidence, um, but not too hard that you start breaking them down. Um, so from my perspective, it's about uh, empowering people and inspiring people, but also being firm and fair. And I think most importantly, from my perspective, being um, the first to acknowledge mistakes when I've made them and to get them encourage people to acknowledge mistakes themselves. Uh, and it's only when you, you achieve that within a team that you end up with a team that not only uh, is trusted by the management, but also by customers, but most importantly, they also trust each other and they all pull in the same director. So it's a it's direction. It's it's effectively a, a benevolent dictatorship, but mm. with the emphasis being on the benevolence of it. Uh, firm but fair, I think. Um, and yeah, teamwork is everything. It certainly is uh, for sure, because without that team of people around you, there's not really much there to lead in the first instance. Um, But also there are some incredibly important things to take away from that in that it's important, as you say, to empower people to take on their own form of leadership, be a little bit independent at times and try things for themselves. Because learning and making mistakes, as you've mentioned as well, and then admitting to when we've made those mistakes and embracing them as a learning curve, that is incredibly important. And we can only be allowed to make mistakes by having that experience for ourselves and making mistakes and learning from them is an incredibly important part on that journey of development isn't it a hundred percent and what what we always say is um it's absolutely fine for anybody to make a mistake that's um expected and entirely natural just make sure you never make the same mistake again And when we think about sort of that learning process, do you think, therefore, that effective business leaders are sometimes born with certain innate qualities, or do you think that leadership is something that can effectively be learned? Um, I think there's an element of that, but I think um, most people learn leadership either from making their own mistakes or their their own successes. Or uh, in my case, I think I learned everything, just about everything I learned about leadership was through working for people who weren't good leaders. Um, It's a lot easier to learn how to do things right when you see things being done wrong 
uh, if things are done right all the time, it's very hard to understand how how that is happening. But uh, yeah, be led by a poor manager or a poor leader, and you very quickly uh, improve your own innate leadership skills. That's my view, anyway. I think that's incredibly important because it's not just good and effective leaders out there whom we work for when we sort of take on these roles ourselves that sort of inspire us and teach us, are there? You can take just as much from the negative experiences as the good ones in the sense that maybe this is a tactic that I didn't respond very well to or I don't think would work particularly well for me. So I can then use that to sort of mould my own leadership style. So that that experience of working with other people is incredibly important. Yeah. yeah. And are there any individuals that sort of stick out really that have maybe had a positive sort of impact on you as opposed to sort of a negative that you've learned from over the years? Um, not directly. No, I've been working for myself for so many, many years. Um, but in terms of, um, you know, international figures, or, or not international figures, but, but better known leaders, um, people like Julian Richer of Richer Sounds are... are in my view, iconic um, in terms of his inclusiveness and the teamwork he fosters within his organization and then demonstrates with hard cash. Uh, people like James Dyson really as a, a beacon of tenacity um, and um, and hard work. Um, it, it is those rather than the, the Richard Bransons and, um, uh, and Elon Musk's that, that actually resonate more with me although i have huge admiration for both of those individuals as well but that's a different type of leadership um Mm. it's interesting certainly to ask that question because we often look as employees to people above us in the uh, the business world for that inspiration be that our managers or our ceos but when you are at the top of the tree in a leadership position in a business it's interesting to understand where you sort of draw inspiration from in that sense um just backtracking a little bit however david we talked about of course learning experiences being an incredibly important part of leadership and in the context of the here and now covid19 has been an incredibly difficult and a very challenging and tragic time for communities businesses governments all over the world um, but also it's been a huge learning curve i think it's fair to say in that business has been forced to adapt and innovate and be flexible in order to survive in that sense um, is there anything that you would say that you have learned from the past few months as you've had to adapt to a new reality um i think rather than learning um it, it's been just a uh, uh, application of what we've learned over the last 10 years. I mean, as an organization, SoundUp has had um, some challenging times as we've moved through the music industry, the fashion industry, and, and, and branding. And as a, as a, a startup, we've had a lot of crisis moments uh, in terms of not being able to meet payroll or almost not being able to meet payroll, multiple rounds of financing. Um, and when COVID um, reared up in 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 March this year, um, I think we were probably better prepared uh, than most in that we had the skill sets and the experience to immediately um, address the, the potential storm coming. So in practice, what that meant is you know, the first thing we did, that we always do, is uh, prepare for the worst. So that means putting in place absolutely everything, whether that's um, shareholders lined up, uh, financing lined up, uh, Plan A's, Plan B's, Plan C's. So prepare for the worst, uh, i.e., collapse in business and 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 layoffs and um, suspending 
uh, rent on the office with agreement from the landlord, mm. etc. So that was step one. That we took about um, ten days, and then step two uh, was very much uh, preparing for the opportunities that it might bring along. So working out, for instance, we were active in the retail sector. So in retail, it was a question. Uh, of accepting that there wasn't going to be any business in retail for the next uh, 12 to 18 months uh, and therefore redirecting our resources towards vertical markets where we felt that there was still going to be business uh, and positioning ourselves to benefit from that. And then that's moved on uh, in the last month or so uh, to uh, putting in place a plan to make sure that when we come out of this, we won't only be uh, survive, but we will be immensely stronger in, that, in the sector that we are now concentrating on. And there's been a great deal of debate during this time as well about our working practices and the way that we do do business in this country. So if we sort of fast forward maybe two or three years and we're hopefully by then in a world where COVID-19 is no longer an issue, do you think in that scenario that there is still a place for the office environment to be back working fully in vogue or do you think more and more people will be working remotely on a personal basis by then? I I think there will be... um... There will be more people. Obviously, more people will work at home. Um, I, I'm, I don't believe that the office is dead. I do believe that um, a core part of going back to what we said earlier, um, what makes a great organisation and leadership is about teamwork. And we are all human beings. And 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 the very word team immediately suggests social contact, uh, people getting on, respecting each other. And it's very hard to do that completely in a remote environment. I mean, that said, we are not, we uh, found out are fine working remotely from a practical level. We do miss uh, the whole team does miss, you know, the social events. We have a table football in the office that is in use almost constantly. Um, and all those, those human interactions that mm. actually make work more fun, more bearable and more rounded. And that human interaction is incredibly important as well from a mental health perspective, isn't it? Which is incredibly important in leadership, not just in terms of looking after your own as a business director, but also that of the employees around you as well. And there's been a real heightened focus on that during this period also. Uh, Yes, absolutely true. And I must confess, I started my career as a lawyer and then corporate finance. Back in those days, uh, my mindset was the only thing that matters in a business because the business is is profit and shareholders and the owners of the business and, and that the business is profitable and the whole concept of stakeholders was something alien to me. Uh, rolled forward 25 years and my I think I've done a complete about face. Um, the stakeholders in the business, yes, the shareholders are important, of course they're important uh, and that is a big picture. But the day-to-day picture and the way you achieve that for the shareholders uh, is by looking after the employees. And that's not just making sure they get paid every month. That's on every level. And I must confess, personally, I am that is not my strongest skill set in terms of spending uh, huge amounts of time checking that people are okay, giving them little loans if they're in, in trouble, uh, and making sure that home life and work life is, is, is as good as it can be to the extent we can help them. Um, but uh, in my case, I, I have a fantastic number two who is absolutely brilliant at that. And that's what I suppose part of leadership is, is identifying where your shortcomings are and making sure you plug those holes using um, other mechanisms, uh, typically hiring people who are better 
than you at the things that you're not great at. Um, so, yeah, no, I would agree. Uh, mental health, I mean, a happy, healthy, mentally health employee is a productive um, asset to the business. So why, why wouldn't you do that? And it leads me very nicely onto a quote by Nelson Mandela. In fact, um, he once said, surround yourself with people who are better than you. And that example that you've just mentioned there essentially epitomizes um, that advice. And if you were to actually give some advice, David, to maybe somebody who was about to start their first day in a leadership role within a business, what advice would you personally have to give them, given your experience? Sorry, I missed the first part of that question. Okay, uh... So considering um, your experience within business of sort of crisis management, um, if you will, if you were to give some advice yeah. to somebody who was about to start their first day in a leadership role, what advice would that be? Oh, uh, I think always, always prepare for the worst uh, and then strive for the best. But uh, always have, I mean, I always, always have plan B and C around typically the finances of a business um you you should never wake up one morning and go oh my god i don't know what to do things are going wrong you must always go things are going wrong uh and therefore this is what i'm going to do and by the time you've actually fallen back on plan b or plan c two or three times the stress begins to it doesn't completely evaporate but the stress levels come down significantly because you have the knowledge and the confidence that uh if a crisis does hit you are as prepared as you can be. And if it does go all wrong and the business falls, then at least you walk away knowing you did do everything you could. Um, so, <clears throat> yeah, it's, upsides are, are easy to deal with. Downsides is, is where the real grit uh, shows in a, in a team. And now thinking about um, the future and what the challenges of the new normal might bring, David, what is next over the next 12 months for yourself and for the business sound out? And what do you sort of hope to achieve as we move through the COVID-19 pandemic and look to the longer term future? Um, Well, we are, um, unlike many businesses, fortunately, we're we're not that usually impacted um, by COVID. We have 3 million people online who rate and review music and video and um, brands, etc. Uh, and we overlay that with machine learning and AI to, to provide uh, fantastic insights for our customers. So that still goes on. Um, the challenge is that some of our, our, our customer segments are struggling. So retail obviously is one of those. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, we're focusing on um, a couple of sectors, sonic branding and branding generally, uh, where there is a huge growth market whereas there is great opportunity a few competitors um, and we can take our current product set in that area and absolutely revolutionize it over the next six months so as I said when people um, uh, pull their pull their heads out of the covers and start looking at what's next um, we are we, we, we come across as um, the clear number one global leader in the field uh, we're very confident we do that, and, and already we, we, we have a whole host of major global brands using us um, just over the last three months. So I'm really excited personally. Um, I'm not that excited for the economy, and I, I feel very sad for all those businesses that were phenomenally successful and have been absolutely um, hit in the stomach by, by COVID uh, with all the uncertainty to come. 
Certainly seems as if there are some big plans there nonetheless amid all of the um, uncertainty, David, and it will be really fascinating to see how things pan out. And given that it is actually one thing speculating on the future and then another looking back and analysing, I think it would be great to perhaps have you back on the programme with us in a few months' time just to see how things are getting on in that respect. Yes, that would be great. I'd be, I'd be delighted. It would be my pleasure to have you back on the uh, the programme as well, David, just as it's been my pleasure having you join us today. It's been a really insightful and enjoyable conversation for myself. And until we do hopefully speak again in future, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on, because we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet. And there's plenty of time for things to change one way or the other still. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Thank you. That was David Courtier Dutton speaking, CEO and founder of Soundout. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, Lord David Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett, during his political career, rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August of 2015 when he was anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak Uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery 
whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm -hmm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? 
Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary 
often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, Mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. 
you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Um, These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by 
COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently, let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. 
Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission Uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has 
Mr. Keir Starmer set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, the thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blanket. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. 
Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.